Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Again, I told you at the beginning, this is one of those passages of Scripture that as a good Southern Baptist growing up, you did not talk about this passage until Christmas. Um, so, so, we are not good Southern Baptists, evidently. Um, let's go. Chapter 2 of Luke, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So we want to just real quick put your finger there in Luke. Jump back to Matthew Chapter 1, if you're using a phone, you can't really put your finger there, so um, jump back to Matthew chapter 1, and I just want you to reserve in your Bible, put a bookmark, use your bulletin, whatever, something in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to jump back there real quick when we get to verse, uh, when we get to verse 4, um, so we're going to jump back when we get to verse 4 and 5, but I just want I wanted you to be ready, everybody ready? Good. Let's, let's dive into this passage and, and find our delight in God's Word here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So let's pause here and deal with a historical thing that's going on. Luke is recording a taxation census. This was common in Rome. It was normal. Uh, if you read a lot of academic works, you'll find some disagreement over whether or not this uh, particular uh, reference to a census, a worldwide census being had, made, uh, was, was true. You'll see some scholars who like to argue that things in the Bible aren't true, arguing that this didn't happen, that this they didn't have a worldwide census, and how dare Luke say that this was a worldwide census, and blah, 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 blah. The, and that's kind of how I feel about their arguments. The, the truth of the matter is that census taking like this happened all the time. This was common taxation from the Roman government to the Jewish people. What they would do is they'd tell you, you need to pick up your life and go to your place of origin or the place where your family is, and when you pick up your life and go there, you're going to pay taxes in that city, and that way we know everybody has paid taxes because everybody shows up in person back then. You don't mail in your taxes back then. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So you showed up in person to the city of your origin, and you paid your tax. And 
Caesar Augustus knew you paid your tax, or the Quirinius, the governor, knew you paid your tax, or later on, Pilate knew you paid your tax, because you were registered in this particular town, which was your town of origin. Now, uh, Galilee is not where Bethlehem is. It's a long journey, and it takes a long time to get there. It's an uncomfortable and frustrating thing to have to uproot your life in one city and travel to another by foot and donkey. It's, it's a difficult journey, and it's not easy. This is a taxation from a government that demands inconvenience. There is no other reason for Joseph to have to take his pregnant wife halfway across the country except that the government has decided to make his life inconvenient so they can take his money. So, I want you to think about Silent Night. When he gets to Bethlehem, you really think it's quiet? I mean, you've been around enough Southerners to know that when you tax somebody and you inconveniently make them do all the work to pay the taxes, they have to travel to go do it, they have to turn it in. I mean, goodness gracious, we do this with parking tickets. You complain. Complain about everything. you got men in the taverns and probably in the inn just yelling Screaming about it. Fist fights are probably breaking out. This is a rowdy place. People from all over are back. There's family reunions going on, so houses are crowded. Houses have been crowded for a couple weeks now. I don't know how you are with your family, but I know that when, when we visit with family across the board, the ones we like and the ones we don't like, we visit with family as people, we in general, Please don't get offended, those of you who are online who are part of my family. I'm not talking about you. The, when we visit with family, there's a limit to how long we want to be around them. Isn't there? There's a limit. There's a desire to return to our own bed in our own house and not to be sharing with 15, 13, 17, 200 other people. Feels like 200, even if there's only one. Right? Like, you don't want to share. I... I don't want to share my office with children all the time or with my sister every day. But I love having her around. That's not the point. The, um, she's watching, so I love you. The, um, there's, a, there's a frustration here that we need to grasp. An inconvenient frustration where they've been imposed upon by the government to travel. These kinds of tax censuses were normal at the time. They were common, but they were annoying. And it happened every few years. Often, uh, there's actually a rule in the Roman rule book that says every seven years and every 14 years. You're supposed to have these taxation periods for large swaths of people to get them back in their own place. And what this did for the Roman government was it served two purposes. One, it collected taxes and registered all the citizens so they knew who they were. First, second, it told all the citizens, you belong to us. That's what it told every citizen. You belong to us. Every person in Roman province had to travel inconveniently and go to these places. And Rome was looking at these people saying, you are, are ours. You belong to 
to us. You don't have freedoms. You belong to us. This was inconvenient. It was frustrating. And it was time-consuming. This was the first registration, verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So that little note there, just the historical note that he gives you there, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, is difficult to find in the ancient text, uh, primarily because we've lost a lot of ancient texts, uh, the Roman uh, records and things. We've lost a lot of them, but it's there. And that little specific note that Luke puts in there, gives veracity to the scripture. It gives explanation that this actually happened, that this is an actual thing that actually happened. And here's the argument for why. If Quirinius was not governor of Syria at that time, no one would have taken Luke seriously. No one would have kept his gospel. There were lots of gospels written. And they a lot of them are thrown out because they weren't, Valid. No one would have kept Luke's gospel if this hadn't happened. You see, Luke is assuming that people were around and know how much this took and who it was and what it was that they were that they were doing. He he's making the assumption that his reader was there. So we see here that uh, there's a frustrating inconvenience a time-consuming taxation, a Roman oppressive government that is drawing him here, and it actually happened. This is true. It actually happened, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, on the outside, this looks like a frustrating, inconvenient, irritating thing. Can you imagine, just for a minute, just bear with me, imagine traveling... You women, imagine traveling pregnant on a donkey a a few days' journey or by foot. Yeah, no. My husband's going to carry me in a nice cart with some shocks, like, or we're not going, right? Like this, he's going to buy an SUV and we're going to drive there and it's going to take an hour. Like, this is not going to happen. This, imagine that. And then imagine being the husband. Having to carry everything you own, all your stuff. This isn't a day trip. This is a long time. They're, they're leaving one city to go to another in a time when you didn't have remote access on your phone to check your house. So you're taking all your valuables with you. And you're carrying them probably on a cart, hopefully with a donkey pulling the cart. But can you imagine? Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? How long until we get there, honey? I don't know. Can you just imagine going back and forth? The husband trying at first, right? The husband would try at first to make everything as comfortable as possible. Right? Try at first. And then as he fails, because all men fail, as he fails, she gets more and more frustrated and more and more passive-aggressive. I'm not saying all women do, but this is just my imagination. That a pregnant woman who is struggling internally and personally with frustrations over the government forcing us to do this. And a husband who is struggling internally with frustration over the fact that he's had to uproot his life to travel in order to give someone his money. This, This is 
difficult and frustrating. Just imagine, I, th- I think maybe, you know, day two at best, day two, a strong husband is now quiet and clinch-jawed. And a strong and loving wife is now sighing. She loves her husband. She's a great woman, but she's sighing. You know what I'm saying? <sighs> Honey, would you like to stop for lunch? <sighs> There's a Whataburger up the road. <sighs> I don't. I don't want. I want Chick Fil A. Yeah, I want Chick Fil A. They don't have Chick Fil A in Judea. They have, that's in Nazareth, baby. They don't have Chick Fil A in Judea. <sighs> well, what do you want to eat? <sighs> and she's pregnant. Probably in pain. Exhausted. Can you just imagine the conversations going back and forth? And yet, this is God's fulfillment of God's plan. Out of frustration and inconvenience and discomfort, God is fulfilling His purposes. This is actually His plan, that the baby would be born in Bethlehem. This is prophecy being fulfilled. And yet it's inconvenient. You see, God often fulfills His prophecies in inconvenient ways. Think back to Jacob, right? Jacob has his prophecy fulfilled when he comes back to the promised land and he's got the limp and he has to meet Esau and he has to bow down to his older brother. And he has to bow down in humility to his older brother and give away half his stuff so that he can fulfill the prophecy that God has given him. Think about Joseph who saves Israel only after being sold into slavery and living in prison for years. He saves all of Israel only after being sold into slavery. Think about Moses, who had to go back to the country he ran away from. He's a murderer and a criminal, and God comes to him and goes, I'd like you to go back there and talk to the ruling authority uh, who knows that you're a criminal. I'd like you to go back there and talk to him. God often fulfills his promises in uncomfortable and inconvenient ways for us. But the promises bring grace. The movement of God is often inconvenient. It usually requires movement that we would rather not do. The movement of God is often inconvenient and usually requires movement that we would rather not do. So in the movement of God here, we see He is fulfilling His promises. But in the end, grace comes to us in inconvenient ways. In the end, grace comes to us in inconvenient ways. Grace comes to us in inconvenient ways. So note here in verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own town. All went to be registered, each to his own town. Everyone is subject to this inconvenience. This is what's wild. God uses a massive inconvenience in order to bring about redemption. God uses a massive inconvenience in order to bring about redemption. Everyone is subject to this massive inconvenience. Everyone. This is, history is flowing at a common pace that affects everybody. Everybody is affected by history. Everybody's affected by this political regime that wants to rule over the people. Everybody is affected by these leaders who want to dictate the terms of your life. And yet God, in allowing them to dictate the terms, has made them 
fulfill his prophecy. You see, when we look at the Bible and when we look at individual people, when we look at them as a mass, we lose their individuality. But when we look at them as, but God doesn't look at them as a mass. God looks at you as an individual. An individual who makes up part of a mass. Not a mass of people like Rome does. I want all the people to come back to Bethlehem so they pay my taxes. God instead sees Mary and Joseph traveling on the road to a stable. Rome saw an inconvenient but an opportune moment to take money. God saw individuals who bore the Messiah in a stable that he designed for them to be in. This inconvenient flow of history treats individuals as inconsequential, yet God is working in individual places. So there's an application for us here. Do you feel inconsequential? I mean, I do. If I'm honest, I feel inconsequential. I feel like I'm looking at the world around us and we can't do anything. All we can do is sit and watch and wait and pray. I feel inconsequential. And yet, I recognize in this story, Joseph and Mary to the Roman government were inconsequential. Yet they travel to Bethlehem and give the most consequential moment in history. The single most consequential moment in history is accomplished in them here in Bethlehem. The birth of the Messiah that changes the world. Do you feel inconsequential? Be reminded that God uses inconsequential individual people to change the world. He's done it all of history. The world looked dark. Remember, the world looked dark here. They were going to the town. Can you imagine? I just want you to imagine for a moment with me them entering the town... And, and when you're forced to pay taxes, and you're a rough human being, you work with your hands for a living, maybe you, you have, a, have a background that's not so innocent, and, and you're forced to go into a town that you don't live in to, to pay taxes, just, you're a little rowdy, aren't you? You're a little angry, aren't you? Because taxes don't care for whether or not you're a kind person or a mean person. Those people are all called to pay taxes, and they're all called together. And so you're going to have criminals and abusers, um, alcoholics, drug addicts, all kinds of people called back to the city of their origin, a small city that people try to move away from. Bethlehem is a small city in Judea that people typically move away from. They say, when they get older, they go, you know what, when I get older, I'm going to move to Copernicus. And I'm going to move to the big city. I'm going to move to Jerusalem. I'm going to move to the big city. I'm not going to stay here. And they move out. They don't stay. But when they're all called back, this is a massive population called back to a little bitty town. Itty bitty living space. Massive population called back to a little bitty space and they are all crammed in and the world looks dark. It looks dark. Herod has led the people of Israel into idolatry by setting up idolatrous temples all around Judea. 
Rome is oppressing the people. They are holding the people captive and demanding that they recognize that you are their slave. The priests are weak at best. Remember when we studied Zechariah, we pointed out the high priest is not involved in the prophecy. It shows you that the priests are weak at best. And there are no prophets speaking. The world looks dark, and yet God was moving in a carpenter and his wife who were going to deliver a baby in a dirty stable. It may not have been dirty. It may have been clean, but it's still a stable. Animals are there. I assume it's dirty. So they're going to deliver this baby in a stable or a shed. So they go to Bethlehem uh, here. And Joseph went up from Galilee, this is verse 4, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Joseph goes up from Galilee, from Nazareth. So first thing about Galilee and Nazareth, that's a mixed race city, a Greeks and Jews, Gentiles and Jews living together in Galilee, this mixed race area. So it's got Roman people, it's got Greek people, it's got people hangovers from uh, Arab societies, it's got various classes of people. It is a melting pot of people, Galilee and Nazareth. They're a melting pot of people. They're not just Jewish. There are all kinds of people there. And he goes to Bethlehem, small town, Jews only. Bethlehem, small town, Jews only. So I want, I want you to just put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You've been living in a little bit larger of a town, but it's a very different culture. And you go back to your small town, Brazoria, and you go back to your traditional system of values and your traditional, uh, your traditional position. You're going back to uh, the place that is Jewish in nature and in people. And you're going back to Bethlehem, where the Jews are. Bethlehem, by the way, is a very important word means house of bread. House of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. And indeed, it is the house of bread, right? I am the bread of life. Right? That's what Jesus calls himself. I'm the bread. He's, he's the bread. He is life. And he comes from the house of bread. So from the outset here, Jesus, God, is giving you a picture of what's about to happen. They are headed from this melting pot of people... He's taking two people from them and he's leading them to the house of bread where the sustainer of life, the bread of life, is going to be born. How beautiful is that poetic picture that God paints in Scripture? Let's give you another example of the same thing happening. Abraham is plucked from Ur of the Chaldees, told he will be his people, and sent to Canaan, the land of promise, where all his needs would be met by God. The people of Israel are plucked from slavery out of Egypt, and they are brought through the Red Sea, across the Sinai Peninsula, into the land of promise, flowing with milk and honey. Joseph and Mary are plucked 
from a melting pot of people in an area that has kind of disregarded religion altogether, with the exception of a few faithful Jews who are living and worshiping in various places, and they travel to the house of bread where the birth of the Messiah is going to happen. How amazing is this? It's a beautiful picture. God gives it to us over and over in the Old Testament. There's more examples over and over in the Old Testament. God taking people from one place picking them up, leading them to another one, and giving them sustaining life there. Indeed, the church right now exists in a traveling portion, being picked up from this earth, from this society, and awaiting our Master to return and give us heaven on earth. And heaven and earth combined in the new heaven and the new earth. How beautiful is this picture that God repeats over and over and over. It is the picture of redemption bringing Jesus' life out of the house of bread, the bread of life out of the house of bread to give it to the masses. And where does Jesus grow up? He spends a few years in Bethlehem. He spends a few years in Egypt. And then he moves to the mixed multitude of Nazareth. The word of life comes from the Jews to the world. The word of life comes from the Jews to the world. This inconsequential couple traveling from one place to another. Jump over to Matthew chapter 1. And I just want to illustrate for you God using inconsequential people to accomplish His purposes. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Christ, the son of David. I am going to stop multiple times as we go. The, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz and Re- by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed. And by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. So right from the outset, there in verse 1, you see what he's going to articulate. He's going to articulate that... Jesus Christ is coming from the line of the king and the line of the people of Israel. So two prophecies should trigger in your brain. Two things. One, that David has this one prophecy that a son from your line will sit on the throne forever. A son from your line will sit on the throne forever. Second prophecy. Abraham is given the prophecy, your seed will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and by your seed, by your child, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. By your child, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Are you following? Those two things are right at the outset. Verse 1. Verse 1. By your child, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then 2. You will have a child sit on the throne forever. Forever. He will sit on the throne forever. This town of little consequence, of little, uh, little merit, has these two prophecies met here. 
Abraham and David's prophecies. Now just look at the, look at the names. I'm going to go through these names kind of quickly. Stick with me. Abraham, father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah. And his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Uh, if you've never read that story, it's an R-rated adult story. Go read it and ask yourself, wow, Tamar is included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Tamar and Judah are included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Tamar is included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Then you've got Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute, not even a Jew. She's not even Jewish, and yet she gets included. She's included in here. And Ruth, uh, Boaz, uh, father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth, again, is a Moabite, not a Jew. Not a Jew. She's not Jewish, and she's included in this perfect lineage of the Messiah. And then, uh, Bo, let's see, Ob, uh, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, the, by the wife of Uriah. Um, just take note that the Jews are so offended by the wife of Uriah, by Bathsheba, by that whole incident, that they can't even say her name. They can't even say her name. It's been hundreds of years, and they can't say the name Bathsheba in the lineage. They say uh, Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is a scourge on their people. This is a this is a this is a damnable thing that happened, and so they can't even say her name. They say the wife of Uriah. They've held on to this for over seven hundred years. This is problematic to them. The wife of Uriah and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a wicked king. And Rehoboam, the father, he splits the kingdom, right? He's a wicked king who, my father drove you with whips. I will drive you with whips and chains. Like he, he splits the kingdom. Uh, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Isaiah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz is a reed shaken by the wind. By the way, Ahaz, uh, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So there in that first one, in that first set in the genealogy, you've got uh, two women who are not uh, necessarily holy, right? Both of them, at one point or another, act as prostitutes. Then in the second set, you've got a woman who is included, who is not even named. They won't even say her name. The wife of Uriah, because it's such a, uh, it's such a tragic moment in Israel's history. Then you've got the king that divided the nation through his poor leadership. You've got a reed shaken in the wind. You've got a, a king who's a, a shaken reed that's shaken by his wife. And then you've got all these various leaders who all fail who all fail to live up to their kingly association. All of them fail to live up to their kingly association. And then we go on here in verse 12, and it says, After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shetael, Shetael, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of, the father of Elohim, and Elohim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, 
And Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. That last set, there's only one notable name in there, Zerubbabel. He's the only notable name. Everybody else, you're kind of like, eh, yeah, they're around. They're not famous, and they're not powerful, and they're not special. There's 14 generations in all, and between those two, in, in each of those sets, 14 generations. 14 is to point you to that middle set. 14, 14, 14. Uh, in Jewish numerology, the name David, D-B-D, is 464-14. It's the fourth letter, the sixth letter, the fourth letter. This is beautiful poetry. It's a Hebrew poetic device. And he is pointing you to the idea that Jesus is the king, the promised seed who would sit on the throne forever. And yet, God uses inconsequential people to make this happen. These are inconsequential. They don't matter. And God uses them to make this happen. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. He uses inconsequential individuals to accomplish the greatest thing in history. This is a list of individuals who never live up to their kingly association. In the same way, Bethlehem has never lived up to its kingly association. This is the house of David, where David was, was born. This is, this is the king's place. This is supposed to be a grandiose city. And what it is, is a small, podunk city in the middle of nowhere, in Judea. It's quiet most of the time, except during tax season, when all the college students return, because we have to pay taxes. This is... This is Bethlehem, a small city that has never lived up to its kingly association. Jesus comes from a lineage of small people who have never lived up to their kingly association. And he comes to us, bringing salvation to a small, inconsequential people who never lived up to our kingly association. And yet, Rome calls them to them to, to their cities and says, "You belong to us." And Jesus is born out of these out of this circumstance and says, "No, you belong to me." And we say, "Lord, we have never lived up to our kingly association. Lord, we have never lived up to our kingly association. We don't we don't we don't live right. We don't know right. We don't do right." Lord, we've never lived up to this. And he says, you are mine. Oh, Christian, hear that. Hear the fact that Jesus Christ says, you are mine. You are mine. It doesn't matter if you live up to it. You are mine. You belong to Jesus Christ. And the world might tell you, that you don't live up to it. And you can look it in the face and go, I know, and neither do you, but he, you can be his too. You are mine. Don't live up to it. 
You are mine. The king has come home. Verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So he, he is born in poverty. The king of life is born in poverty. Wrapped in rags. Those swaddling clothes there are rags. Wrapped in rags and laid in a food trough. Because there's no place for them to rest. Indeed, the rest of life is in Mary's hands. And just imagine, I, you are holding Sabbath rest in your hands. And you can't lay down on anything soft. And you have life in your hands for the world. And he comes impoverished and poor and lowly. And he comes to us, inconsequential people who have never lived up to our kingly association. Inconsequential people who have never lived up to our kingly association. Israel was not watching. Rome was not attentive. No one saw it coming. And yet Christ came, rescued and redeemed. Oh, how great and beautiful is our King, the King of glory.